Um, the uh, topic that the church has encouraged us to focus on today is diligence and laziness. And as soon as I got to that, I said, there's a lot of attributes I will use for the exam in class. Laziness is not one of them. But it occurred to me that as we get into these verses, really, we're talking about a biblical view of work. And this might then be relevant. If you pay people not to work, what happens? Oh, they don't work. And if you stop paying people not to work, what happens? They still don't work. (laughs) And uh, one of my colleagues was in Colorado and met somebody that was serving. And uh, somehow they got into the conversation about that she had just started this job. And the reason in Colorado, given her particular status, she was getting $900 a week. $900 a week not to work, but it was driving her crazy. So she finally gave gave that up and went to serve breakfast just because she was going stir crazy. So this scriptures, even though some of it will be about laziness, it also is about diligence. It's all about work. And so even if it doesn't apply to you personally, I think it applies to some of the things we've been talking about here uh, politically for some time. It's going to be a sword drill today. Get out your Bibles because we're going to be jumping around a little bit. But first of all, let's go to Proverbs 12, verse 14. From the fruit of his mouth, a man is satisfied with good, and the work of a man's hand comes back to him. Then skip over here to Proverbs 13, verse 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. And then one more, if you turn over to uh, chapter 15, verse 19. The way of a sluggard is like a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a level highway. And these, I think, illustrate again the fact that we really need to have a biblical view of work. And at the end, I'm going to recommend some books and booklets, which are available if you would like, that might help you think about this. I have run into too many people, and it's one of the reasons I even put together a booklet, and one of the books we have here even has a chapter on work, because a lot of people think that the reason we work is because of the fall. But actually, if you go back and look at this, God actually intended for Adam and Eve to work in the garden. Uh, So work existed before the fall. Um, I've been getting, George and I have been talking about heaven and uh, the new heavens and the new earth and some things he was hearing on radio. When we get into the new heavens and the new earth, I think we will work again. And so we recognize that work is something that God has given to us. That's the way God has made us. But at the same time, now work is more difficult because the ground is cursed. Sin has come into the world. And so there is labor and uh in many cases, much more drudgery because of work. But if you think about this, paradise that God placed them in was not a place where they just stood around idle. Uh, We have all sorts of things that we know that Adam was involved with, and they worked the ground and were stewards of it. Uh, One of the commentaries that the church provided for me was a quote from Amy Sherman, who actually I've interviewed on my program before. She's really an individual writing about work and workplace ethics and those kinds of things. But she has a great line in which she said, work is a gift of God. Work is something we were built for, something our loving creator intends for our good. So lots of times people say, well, I just work to pay the bills. True. But whether it's work that you get paid for, or sometimes some of us with our hobbies, we work just about as hard with our hobbies as we do for things uh, that we don't get paid for, or even working around the house, that is something that should be fulfilling to you, I would say. Why is that? 
because we're created in the image of God, and God himself was a diligent worker. Two weeks ago, we actually talked about creation, and the fact is God created the world in what? Six days and rested on the seventh. Could God have created the world instantaneously? Yes, I think so. But he set a pattern for us. Six days of work, one day of rest. And all work is important to God, whether it's, quote, ministry work or secular work. I don't like that. We have really inherited, I have to say, from the Catholic Church, this idea that there is ministry, there's sacred work, and then there's secular work. That sacred-secular dichotomy is something that we need to get rid of. But if nothing else, we are to work, and we're to work diligently. We can see some verses here that talk about the importance of diligence. And if you're taking some notes, might on the mark. Margin might put down Colossians 3, 23 and 24, because it talks about the fact that we're working ultimately to the Lord. You may have a boss and you're working for that boss, but ultimately behind that boss, standing behind that boss is the Lord. And you're working ultimately and should be diligently because you are a believer in that regard. And so like the story of creation, we see Proverbs tells us that work is a good thing, not only, of course, sustains us physically, uh, providing the money and resources, but there's also a sense of pride and satisfaction. And I recognize that most of the surveys that have been done in the last couple of years find that most people hate their work. And sorry about that, but it seems to me that you should find something that you enjoy doing, because I believe that if you are working according to your gifts and callings, there are times when you say... It's just amazing to get paid for doing this because I really enjoy what I do. And even if that isn't in your employment, there are other work that you're doing, maybe even here in this ministry, uh, here in the examine class or here at Prestonwood, that would certainly be the case. Uh, verse uh, 4 out of chapter 13, I didn't read that one, even says work is good for your soul. Because ultimately it helps us to be fulfilled. And actually we find that people accomplish, when they accomplish something, it makes them feel better. Okay, shameless plug for just a minute. One of the individuals I love to interview on Point of View will be on this week. His name is Arthur Brooks. Dr. Arthur Brooks used to be at Syracuse, then became the head of the American Enterprise Institute. And he, I quote him so often because first of all, he did surveys in which he concluded that the people that give the most tend to be conservatives. Liberals talk about giving, but conservatives give more. And Christians obviously give more than humanists do. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's not just giving in terms of money and tithe and things like that. He even argued in his book that if the rest of the country gave blood the way Christians give blood, we would not have a blood shortage in America. So uh, on everything from uh, work to, you know, sweat equity to blood to money, Christians and conservatives tend to give more than secularists and liberals. Well, anyway, his more recent book points out the fact that when, and we're going to be talking about his book on happiness, but even years ago he said that the thing that brings us the greatest happiness and the greatest sense of fulfillment is what? Earned success. If you look at individuals that won the lottery and did nothing for it, and compare that to people that raised themselves up by their bootstraps, you can see there is a striking difference. And this week we're going to talk about his new book on happiness. Uh, he's no longer at the Enterprise Institute. By the way, he's an interesting man. 
one of the most trained French horn players in the world actually played for major symphonies and then walked away from that whole area because he began to be interested in this, got his doctorate, went to Syracuse, was a professor there, heads up AEI. So he's just a multi-talented individual. We've always enjoyed him. And I think he's on Wednesday or Thursday. I think it's Wednesday, though. And if you want to listen to him, he's talking about the value of earned success. Now, that doesn't mean that we should then place our self-worth and identity in our career success or achievements. In just a minute, I'm going to recommend a book called uh, Your, Your Work Matters to God. And in there, they talk about the fact that there is a tendency, frankly, again, for us guys, we're probably more guilty of this, to identify by what we do in the workplace. I've seen many a men's retreat where they say, okay, guys, uh, go and introduce yourself, but you can't tell people what you do. And a lot of them go, well, I want to tell them I'm an accountant, I'm a banker, I'm a lawyer, you know, I work in sales. And when you can't do that, you realize how much you are tied up into your work. And again, I'll recommend a book in just a minute. But at the same time, that doesn't mean we just deny our work, because if you go to the book of Ecclesiastes, and again, I didn't put that in the notes, but if you want to put it on the margin there with your pen, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 22, also in uh, chapters 5 and 9, you see Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes talk about the fact that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work. So at the same time, we shouldn't get our identity necessarily in our work, but we do get meaning from it, and it illustrates again the value of work. And so even though I'm ignoring talking about laziness, because I don't think we need to have that many admonitions to this class on laziness, you can still see some ideas there as well. And again, biblical wisdom is not about trying to achieve worldly success. But if you read through the Proverbs, and that's why I'm giving you some of these pocket Proverbs, I'm hoping you're reading through these as I am, you see that a lot of it is identified with things that existed back then. Agriculture, animal husbandry, clothing manufacturing, trade. I mean, some of you actually um, live or, or grew up in farms or things like that. But even if today you're not involved in delivering calves or plowing ground, still the lessons there can be applied to your work where you can show prudence and honesty and justice and kindness and grace and insight and even apply biblical view of money. So that's kind of that first section that we're looking at here. And I want to be careful because we have seen a couple of places where it talks about the sluggard or the lazy. We're going to get into that more in just a minute. And you want to not make this sweeping statement say, all people are poor because they're lazy. No, that's not true. But I have seen, and you probably are well aware of the fact that there have been lots of studies point out that individuals maybe are actually poor because of decisions they've made about addictions and other kinds of things. And sometimes people are poor because of circumstances completely out of their control. Exploitation, injustice, and those kinds of things. But at the same time, there is something that is, again, what we find in the book of Ecclesiastes. I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. 
So people might be poor simply because of circumstances outside of their control. But at the same time, we do see a general principle, if you think about that, and that is when it talks about this idea of working your land. Now, again, most of us have land, but not like we're working land as agriculture. Or oh, It's, again, the value of hard work because oftentimes God does bless that hard work versus following worthless pursuits. Now, I had to look this up in the commentary. I didn't realize this. First of all, in the ancient world, of course, if uh, your name is Smith, quite possibly somewhere back in your genealogy, they were a blacksmith. You know, if your name was Farmer, probably you were a farmer. Okay, you know, those kinds of names. And so you recognize that oftentimes if your father was a carpenter or a fisherman or a farmer, they would then pass that on to you. So that's the idea of working the land, uh, because it was, in a sense, a way of saying doing your job. But it also talks about worthless pursuits, and I didn't know what that really meant. Well, it turns out in the ancient world, that was another way of saying, get rich quick. You ever heard of get rich quick? You know, you've probably seen some of those commercials. You're probably getting some Facebook ads where you're saying get rich quick. That's what they're talking about, kind of a form of laziness where people trying to find the easy way out. Worthless pursuits, sometimes they were talking about the prodigal son is another illustration of that that Jesus uses. And so the point there is we should work diligently whatever God has called us to do, not always trying to find the easy way out. And so I think that's what is being communicated there as well. well let's look at uh, some other passages as well, because now we have a couple of others that get us into this. And uh, first of all, let me pull this out and we'll look at uh, Proverbs 6, probably one of the more famous passages dealing with this whole idea of work. And in this particular case, we see, Go to the anthill sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, old sluggard, when you arise from your sleep, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Then in uh, chapter 10, we have a section that uh, talks about this whole idea of poverty. Verse 4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. And that was a passage we looked at last week, but I thought we'd re-emphasize it as well. And then in chapter 12, verse 11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits, which we just looked at, actually lacks sense. And then one more, which we'll skip in the interest of time not to look at all of those. Chapter 14, verse 23, is a reminder that, again, we have some passages there. And then uh, chapters 28 to 19. But let me go through that real quickly, because first of all, this idea that a lazy son brings shame to his family. And, of course, that was the implication that Jesus used in his story of, uh, again, the prodigal son. And it isn't so much comparing wealth of hard work. You know, a hard-working teacher or somebody who works in social work doesn't make as much money as a hard-working lawyer. 
And uh, so, again, if they're doing what is right in God's eyes, we're not using a comparison in terms of dollars or money, but it's the idea of focusing on character, really being commended in diligence, and having a good work ethic that needs to be communicated there as well. And one other point, and that is reputation matters. Because here, Solomon reminds us that a lazy son brings shame, not only to himself, but ultimately to his family. But think of the value of a good reputation. A couple weeks ago, you might remember, we spent our time looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And here Paul talks about the fact that we should aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So again, lots of great verses reminding us of the fact that we can have not only the benefits and the fruit of our labor, but we can have a good reputation. And here, again, one of the commentaries put it this way. Notice that the believer's work directly impacts how the outsider, that'd be the non-believer, views him or her, and by extension, how the outsider views the Lord. So oftentimes, people don't see God. Sometimes people have said, you're the only Bible a lot of people will ever read. But if you walk through life and they see something very different about you in terms of your integrity, in terms of your work ethic and diligence, they're going to say, what makes you so different? And just recently, we this last week at the National Religious Broadcasters, one of the individuals that I've had a chance to interview is Pastor Alan Jackson. Um, and uh, he and Jack Hibbs are kind of the rising stars right now at uh, Bot Radio and a number of other places. And interestingly enough, he tells the story that he grew up in a home where they went to a Methodist church, but they didn't really take it seriously. And when his parents became Christians, he finally walked into the kitchen one day and said, what is up? This was a household of anger and tension. What is up? And they shared that with him. And right there on the kitchen floor, he became a Christian. Now is the head of a very dynamic church in the Nashville, Tennessee area. We had a chance to interview him last week. And so, again, sometimes your lifestyle, your work ethic might be enough to cause people to want to know about Jesus. So seeking to live a life of ease, living off the spoils of others' hard work, that's not a good way to actually cause people to want to know about the kingdom. But if you live a godly life before the watching world, they're going to ask, what are you doing? What makes you so different than anyone else? And then finally, real quickly, uh, the third and final point, and that is hard work opens the doors for us, but also brings us honor. And we can see a couple of different passages where this is the case. First of all, in Proverbs 18, verse 9, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys Not exactly a a recommendation for future employment in that particular case. Then in chapter 22, verse 29, uh, where is there it is. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. So there's a tremendous amount of honor that comes from having hard work. And then finally, we're going to look at a passage oftentimes identified with women, Proverbs 31. But let's look at these passages, starting in verse 13. It talks about her. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. 
She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. And it goes on to say, she puts her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. And skipping down to verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. And again, a high standard for women to actually want to achieve. But here we have again, in the ancient world, when someone was really very good at what they did, it is interesting that they would gain a reputation for that. And oftentimes they would be brought before the king because of what they had heard. And here from our commentary, they gave a couple of examples. Remember when Joseph was called in from the prison pit to the courts of Pharaoh to do what? To interpret the dreams. Or remember when Saul sent for the most skilled musician. Who was that? David, while still a shepherd boy, to play for him to soothe his harmful spirit. Or remember when Solomon sent for the best bronze worker, an individual entire, to do the bronze work for his house. And the idea is that the king would always seek out those individuals, hire the best musician, the best artisan, the best prophets, the best administrators, whatever they might be. And none of these examples were where the person actually uh, had um, any other kind of flattery, bribery, or pedigree, or something like that. Instead, it was because they were the best in their jobs. Just think about this. If you were to look around your business or you look around your community, that the best individuals in that profession were Christians. What kind of testimony might that be for the world? You know, if the best musicians were Christian musicians, if the best accountants were Christian accountants, if the best lawyers were Christian lawyers, you know, if the best doctors were Christian doctors. Think about that. I mean, that is an incredible kind of testimony that you can think about. And you think about when this happened, David, at that point, technically was a shepherd boy, although he had gained some stature in the court. And when he had to, that's when he was called. Joseph, of course, was a prisoner when he was called before Pharaoh. So you can see how important doing well in your work can bring honor. And the quality of your work ultimately under, determines your career and not backstabbing or brimating or those kinds of things. That doesn't mean that uh, you can't certainly use some kind of networking and those kinds of things. But if you think about it, when you're really good at what you do, hopefully people will recognize you and it will rise to the top. We all have stories of the best individual being fired because of all sorts of immorality. So again, these are general principles. doesn't guarantee that if you're the best at your job, you're going to be the president someday. But it does suggest that usually if you're trying to evaluate things, doing your work, being dependable is certainly going to help people notice who you are. Perhaps the best way to have success is being good at honing your craft. We're going to talk about that a little bit with Arthur Brooks because they documented that sometimes to really be good at your craft, you have to spend about 10,000 hours there. They first found that with those individuals that play musical instruments. And then they began to look around and recognize that you get better as you go along. 
I'd have to say, some people say, how is it you write a daily commentary every single day? How is it you come up with 300 words that are even uh, interesting for people? Well, again, if I was doing that when I was in my 20s and 30s, a little different than now I'm 70. <laughs> and so, again, there's a sense in which you get better at certain things. And we know this with sports. I mean, those of you that are playing golf, you say, well, I wish it would be a little better, but nevertheless, that's the case. But those of us that, you know, shot uh, basketballs or played baseball, or this week when I guess we're going to be shooting, you know, some people are better shooters than others, but some of that comes from the skill and background that they have. But again, not only will diligence help you to get better in your job, but also shows people you have a strong work ethic, which one of the biggest things that employers obviously look for. And so, again, some great illustrations there as well. A quote from Forbes magazine, A dirty little secret of career success is that very often work ethic and drive trump raw talent as a barometer for overall success. Just working circles around everyone else may, may matter more than having a superior intellect or skill. That's Forbes magazine that they recognize as well. Being the smartest and most talented person in the room uh, means nothing if you're lazy. And I've had the privilege of going to some pretty elite universities, and I can tell you that there were some people that were a lot smarter and a lot more gifted and a lot more connected that have not made much of their lives when you <laughs> go back and see them. So just uh, having a good academic credential, just having a good brain, doesn't mean anything if you don't know how to work. And so, again, that's kind of the principle. But, again, one last uh, disclaimer. That doesn't mean that we overwork. We're not engaged in workaholism and all that. We don't want to make a idol out of work. That's why I take you back to Colossians 3.23. We are to work what? Heartily as unto the Lord. And because the ultimate king that we want to stand for is what? The king of kings, the Lord of lords, and help be a part of building the kingdom. And that's kind of our idea. If you think about this, the Apostle Paul was a tent maker. He saw that not only as an income for himself, but how many times that being a tent maker opened the door for ministry as he traveled around uh, by working, as it says in 1 Thessalonians, day and night to provide for himself. First of all, it was a way that he could show that his motives were pure, but also it provided an opportunity for his ministry as well. So as we wind down this section, let me just mention that a book came out a number of years ago by Doug Sherman and Bill Hendricks. Bill Hendricks is the son of Howard Hendricks, still one of the best books, Your Work Matters to God. It's been out for a number of years, so now you can get a used copy or a Kindle for almost nothing. And then, of course, I have a book uh, booklet called A Biblical View of Work, which is the case. Well, can we talk about Ukraine for just a minute? I thought that might be the case. And uh, when we do that, first of all, let me get you a map of Ukraine, get you thinking about this. One of the questions that Fred asked me to address is why is it that we no longer call it Kiev and we call it Kiev? Anybody know what that is? Well, it turns out that what you are dealing with is that the, in the Ukrainian language and, of course, in the Russian language, they use a Cyrillic alphabet, which is different than the Latin alphabet, you know, or kind of English alphabet. So uh, you are sort of transliterating the uh, words into English, and the people that have done that were the Russians. So Kiev is the way that the Russian people would say that Cyrillic word for what now we call Kiev. So why did the Ukrainians change it from Kiev to Kiev? Because they 
actually pronounce it that way, and they were using that as a way to say that we are more Western and less Russian. As soon as you understand that, you can see part of the problem of why Vladimir Putin is coming uh, into this country. Because ultimately, they have always seen Russia and Ukraine as actually part of the same country. We see them as separate countries today, but uh, these are countries that actually were always one together. A good way to illustrate that is Mikhail Gorbachev. You know who he is? Mikhail Gorbachev's mother was Ukrainian. Matter of fact, everybody on Mikhail Gorbachev's side is you, of maternal side, is Ukrainian. But his father is Russian. But back then, the distinction didn't matter because they saw it all as one country. And so Mikhail Gorbachev grew up hearing Ukrainian songs from his mother. Are you with me? Now you begin to see where today we see these as separate countries. They say them all together. One more real quickly. If you ask any Russian Orthodox individual, where is your Jerusalem? In other words, where was the founding of your religion? Kiev. So for the Russians, that is their Jerusalem, Kiev or Kiev, as we have said that. So once you start understanding that, you can see that now when Vladimir Putin says, with the authority of the Russian Orthodox Church, we want to expand Christendom, you're going, this is expanding Christendom? This is a bizarre way of doing that. But you can see, in some respects, at least the mindset of what has caused this difficulty. Just to give you a sense here, you know, Russia, of course, is to the east, Belarus to the north, Poland, where almost all the refugees are going, but some are going to Romania and Slovakia and Hungary. And there's some suggestion that uh, not only will the Russian troops move to Ukraine, but into Moldova as well. So we're talking about this. Parker and I were talking about the fact that really they're two separate countries but under one geographical connection. Because I've had some people say, you know, when the Russian troops came in, they were celebrating. Yes, in the eastern part of Ukraine, they're much more Russian. Some of them actually speak Russian. And so you can see two of those particular areas that are Russian-claimed territory. Of course, Russian troops are in Crimea as well. But in the west, it's very western. But you can see that this is somewhat of a divided country, but it's doubtful whether or not they'll divide that country. And matter of fact, it's a, it's a country, it's huge. Largest country in that region is Russia. Second largest is Ukraine. This is big, at least at Texas. Um, and so you can understand that. As you're looking at this, you'll also see some nuclear facilities. There's Chernobyl. I think you all know what that is. We also have some other uh, places where there are nuclear facilities. And so now, I, nothing else, want to kind of talk about what some of this means, because ultimately what we are dealing with is a military campaign that is, uh, I think, violating the various rules of war. One of the booklets I have is a booklet on a biblical view on just war. And when there were Christians that for the first time really tried to understand what would be the idea of a just war, there were these seven criteria, five that you think about before you go to war, a just cause, just intention, last resort, formal declaration, limited objectives, and then two that apply when you're in battle, proportionate means and non-combatant immunity. If you've been seeing the pictures, you know how, in this case, there are people calling for the fact that someday... I don't know if it will happen, that Vladimir Putin will be brought before the Hague for war crimes. 
because you can see that uh, in terms of proportionate means, nothing like that is happening right now with the Russian army and non-combatant immunity. They've been firing on it, even killing civilians. So lots of times people say, well, how do we think about this? This is something to understand. Not to say that there isn't corruption in Ukraine and there are all sorts of other issues going on there, but in terms of the way the battle has been fought, it has been a source of some concern. But I thought I'd share just a few things from the National Religious Broadcasters Convention. And one of those I mentioned earlier, Ed Cannon is the head of Far East Broadcasting Company. And uh, even though they are in many countries in the East, they also have had an incredible presence in Ukraine. And even uh, two weeks ago, I had a Ukrainian on our program who was a Jew who became a Christian that talked about some of the incredible revivals that have taken place in Ukraine. Because you have the Ukrainian uh, church, which is now separated from the Russian Orthodox Church. Again, that's part of the tension there. But then a lot of people that have just left the Ukrainian Orthodox Church that have become whores, Baptists, a good number of Baptists now in uh, Ukraine. But nevertheless, they've worked with these different churches. And during COVID, they realized that there was no way for anybody who is part of these churches to hear the pastors because they did not have as much of an Internet presence. They didn't have web pages. They didn't have uh, streaming functions. So during COVID over the last two years, they developed all this so that the churches could minister to their members while they were in their homes. And they did it to deal with COVID, but now this is the way in which the churches can actually minister to and connect with all of the parishioners in their churches. Ed said, we were doing it for COVID, but now look at the benefit. And he says, I've been absolutely shocked that the Internet has not been taken down. And their theory, although in some places where it has, Elon Musk, if you may know, has brought in some ways to get the Internet out there. But the theory is maybe they've kept the Internet out there so that these shocking pictures uh, that are going out on the Internet would cause the Ukrainians to be fearful. So they still have the Internet, and the churches are still able to have a ministry in the lives of those individuals who oftentimes huddled in their homes or basements. Isn't that amazing? That's one of the stories. Another one, we were telling the story of this Ukrainian leader uh, who has been a key leader there, and he actually, because of the military actions in the war, I know you're not supposed to call it a war. Matter of fact, the United Nations, you see that the other day, they're not allowed in the United Nations to call it a war, just a military operation. You know, the first casualty in war are the words sometimes. But nevertheless, uh, this Ukrainian leader uh, brought his wife and his five-year-old son wrapped in a blanket to the Polish border. And then he goes right back to go and fight. Pretty amazing. So, again... Please be praying for them. We also, at the Bot Radio Network, uh, that's an organization I've worked with for many years, uh, brought a guest who is a Ukrainian. I don't know his name, although I'd like to get him on our program as well. And he says, without a doubt, we are seeing the greatest evangelistic harvest in the history of the country of Ukraine. Not that we want a war to have happen, but it is, again, when you, can't, <laughs> when you just can't see anything and you're in a pit, all you can do is look up, and there are an enormous number of people that are becoming Christians. And so that's one of the things we may look back on in terms of what has been happening in Ukraine. But there are just floods of individuals making their way into Poland and into some of the other surrounding countries. 
One of the other things that people have been paying attention to, first there was a fear that they might have another Chernobyl because when you send an 18-year-old, a 20-year-old Russian uh, soldier in, they may just not even understand the danger of catching fire of a nuclear plant. But for weeks there have been these reports that have said that there were biological weapons in Ukraine. And you have seen from MSNBC to CNN and a variety of others saying that this is Russian disinformation until a few days ago. This is the Undersecretary of State Department, Victoria Newland, And uh, in the cross-examination in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, uh, Senator Marco Rubio asked a question where I was sure he was expecting a no answer. And that is, he said... Uh, um, Secretary Newland, uh, does Ukraine have biological weapons? Expecting her to say no, because that's what we've been hearing for weeks, and instead say, well, there are biological laboratories in Ukraine, and we're really concerned that the Russians might have access to some of that. And you can see that uh, Marco Rubio then tries to, you know, pick up by saying, well, if uh, indeed there was any biological weapons used, uh, would, you, would the Russians uh, claim that it was the Ukrainians that did it? So, yeah, that's their standard. He was trying to deal with a shock that he was probably aware of because for weeks there had been saying that this was Russian disinformation. But now you're starting to see some people that are wondering whether or not biolab security isn't a big issue in Ukraine. Heaven forbid that if you had something getting out of a laboratory in Ukraine, that it would cause any kind of disruption around the world, right? I mean, you're starting to realize this is a, a story that is still being carried for some time. And again, you want, the argument for a few days was, well, they were just trying to take, remove all of the biological material from here after uh, Ukraine gained its independence. And they've been doing this for 17 years and they still haven't gotten rid of it. I mean, you've got to believe that there's more to the story than that. So this is, again, a source of some prayer in terms of what is there. Was, if indeed it is there, why did this administration not try to secure it or remove it? And so uh, some of the biological issues have become pretty significant. The other issue, of course, is the issue of sanctions. So we have now implemented very severe sanctions, and I have suggested before, you might want to pray for the Russian people, because you can see that, again, many of these Russians don't support Vladimir Putin. Some of them have been in protests and have been put into jail. Some of them have disappeared. But, again... They are suffering in incredible ways when you see the ruble at one point less than a penny for a ruble. And when they have closed down their um, central bank and some other things, closed down their stock market, pretty significant. But as you can see here, these U.S. sanctions, which were supposed to punish Russia, might also be affecting us. And if you haven't noticed, uh, that is what has happened to the gas prices in the last couple of days. Um, going from, you know, $70 a barrel. This one doesn't show the latest spike. I guess the best I could find went up to 138 and down 120. And if you notice that gasoline is costing you a little bit more. And so if you look at gasoline, you say, well, is there a solution to it? Well, our Secretary of Treasury said, yes, the best way to deal with gas is to buy an electric car. 
I think there are better answers to that one. But again, it isn't just the gas at the pump because gasoline is used and diesel is used to get the food to your grocery store to get you to and from. I mean, this is more than just the price of gasoline going into your car. And so, again, I think we're going to have to also be prepared for some major economic dislocations that may unfold in the next couple of weeks. But finally, um, I thought we'd talk about what's next. Now, this is an individual, William Burns. He is the CIA director. Uh, he has been the ambassador to Russia. I would have to say that uh, maybe Condoleezza Rice, uh, William Burns, and a few others probably know the mind of Vladimir Putin better than anybody else in the world. And he was testifying the other day, and his argument was very simple. On four assumptions that Vladimir Putin made, he was wrong on all four of them. You know, in terms of the success of the Russian military, in terms of the ability to get the Ukrainians, the assumption there wouldn't be major sanctions, on and on and on. And so he says he thinks that Putin actually is likely to double down and even continue this push, not only into Ukraine, maybe even Moldova, maybe even into some of the other countries like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. And uh, there are people that have actually said this could go from bad to worse. But again, don't trust me. This is Maria Baranova. She actually was part of the Russian state uh, broadcast. It's basically a propaganda arm, but she actually left uh, her position as one of the spokespeople in Russia because she says, I fear we're on the brink of a nuclear war. And the concern has always been that uh, if you have somebody that doesn't have proper thinking, we've always in the past recognized that Russia has nuclear weapons, the United States has nuclear weapons, but we have a thing called MAD, which is pretty mad, mutually assured destruction. The idea there is, is that Russia would not land, launch any nuclear weapons because they know there would be others returning. But our concern has always been, as we've talked about with our friend Joel Rosenberg, the Iranians don't have that belief. They believe that this uh, idea of Mahde, uh, the uh, final imam, will come and protect them. Well, there are some people that are thinking that since Russia has more nuclear weapons than we do, and because... Let's face it, Vladimir Putin may not be in his right mind, might honestly believe that he could fire, actually fire off weapons like that, either tactical nuclear weapons in Europe or something else uh, against us, or in not even using military weapons, use cyber attack weapons against us. This is why, if nothing else... Is it about time to pray for what is unfolding before our very eyes? Again, my book on a biblical view on just war, if you want to read it, we have some of these materials up here as well. But it's just, I hope, is an encouragement to you to recognize that greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, trusting in the sovereignty of God. And you can understand what it must be like right now for our Ukrainian Christians that are out there on the battleground. But we can say, well, that's 4,500 miles away, but it may come and affect us as well, and that's why we need to be in prayer. So I'm going to turn it back to Parker, and we will close on prayer today as we talk about this very important issue.